Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. At a recent climate change town hall in Logan, USU physicist and climate researcher Dr. Rob Davies invited audience members to share their stories of environmental change and activism, encouraged brainstorming possible solutions to climate change, and acknowledged the power of an individual to affect change in the world. Even though he says often we're paralyzed, we're passive because we don't see the whole path to the finish line. There's uh, another event coming up in Logan. That's tonight. It's called A Climate Change Solution Worth Dancing About. This is sponsored by the Citizens Climate Lobby, Cache Valley Chapter. That's happening at the Whittier Community Center uh, in Logan. It starts at 7 o'clock and uh, features uh, USU physicist Dr. Rob Davies and bluegrass music by Down Yonder. Uh, so that's in Logan. You can attend that event. Instead of that event, we're talking climate change science and activism. We're asking you what you think and what you're doing in your individual life to try to effect change. Our guests include uh, Dr. Rob Davies. He's Associate Professor of Professional Practice in the USU Physics Department and joins us in studio. Dr. Davies, welcome back to the program. Good morning, Tom. Uh, we also have writer and photographer uh, Stephen uh, Trimble joins us again. Thanks, Stephen. Hi, Tom. Glad to be here. Good to have you on. And we have uh, Brooke Larson, who is a climate activist and uh, U of U graduate student. Uh, Brooke Larson, welcome back to the program. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I want to start with you, Brick Larson, lest I bury the lead. Um, uh, tell me <laughs> tell me what happened, uh, what you did yesterday, and what happened to you. <laughs> yeah, so... A group of young people went to the Bureau of Land Management office and delivered a bunch of letters asking them to cancel the lease sale. Uh, Groups have found and a judge ruled that the BLM illegally reduced public participation and commenting opportunities on the oil and gas lease sale that's happening today. Uh, So we found that it's illegal for them to continue with the sale, but also... Um, immoral in the face of the climate crisis with the recent UN report coming out um, that we have, you know, 12 years to totally transition our economy. It's totally irresponsible to us young people for the BLM to continue to lease lands for oil and gas. So we delivered these letters and then I and three other people continued to sit in and occupy the office uh, until they agreed to cancel the sale, which led to our arrest. So we took civil disobedience, um, and yeah, it was kind of a crazy day. <laughs> so four of you were arrested. Uh, it was a larger group than that. Four of you stayed. Um, what, what did they? What did they say when you, they arrested you? What was the reason they gave? Um, so we were trespassing and you know um, refusing to disperse when they asked us to, but. Um, the BLM didn't really respond to our um, demands that they cancel the sale. They just said that they would take the letters and comments we had and put them into their their system. But we've seen that, I mean, you know, with Bears Ears, thousands and thousands of people submitted comments um, in support of that monument and against the Trump administration's efforts to reduce it. And it didn't seem like they took public comments into account, so uh, it was hard for us to believe that they would just take our letters and take them seriously. So uh, as we were occupying the office, we were reading them out loud to try and emphasize the point that um, they need to listen to our voices and, um, 
yeah, I'm not so sure how uh, they didn't really respond vocally much. They kind of just uh, gathered up things and went back to their offices. Mm-hmm. Now, as you uh, as you no doubt know, um, you know, sales likely go forward. Um, <laughs> Um, but you you feel passionate about this, uh, the illegalities, as you say, but also the moral arguments. Uh, what are you What are you hoping happens? Either you can get a groundswell going to 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 change this. Yeah, that's definitely what we're hoping. And a big goal of this was to one show the BLM that they can't just silence the public on these issues, and that we're rising. Um, in defense of the land and a livable climate, but also to um, build momentum and empower the public to take action on these issues. It's also a unique political opportunity with um, Raul Grijalva out of Arizona usually uh, likely taking the chair of the House Natural Resource Committee, and so there's um, new political opportunities to uh, put momentum forward towards things like Ending leases on fossil, uh, ending leases of fossil fuels on public lands and things like that. And obviously, under the Trump administration, it's um, unlikely that something like that would go forward. But it is important for us to start building momentum towards those policies in the near future. A little bit later in the program, I'll ask you. To, I'll, I'll ask you about uh, a piece you had in High Country News. In fact, it won an award, and you. The, the the title is interesting. Um, what are we fighting for? So I'll, I'll ask you about that a little later. I, I'm I'm guessing Brooke Larson, you're aware of the protests going on in Washington D.C. as well. I believe there were some arrests there as well. Yeah, there's another movement of young folks um, called the Sunrise Movement. I think that's probably what you're talking about that are pushing for this uh, Green New Deal. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I have some friends that organize that nationally, and yeah, I think there was a lot of arrest yesterday um, in D.C. and folks at Nancy Pelosi's office in California, and yeah, I think it's uh, super important that young people are kind of going at this issue from different angles. Here in Utah, it's a bit hard for us to pressure congressional um, folks, since <laughs> we we now have one Democratic representative, but the Sunrise Movement strategy is primarily to target Democrats to get them on this uh, Green New Deal select committee. So um, we targeting our newest uh, representative, Ben McAdams, may be a strategy the young folks could take here in Utah, but we also here in the Southwest have to think of other targets, including the BLMs, and that's definitely one of the... Um, largest contributors to climate change here in the West. Hmm. Let me turn next to Stephen Trimble. Um, listening to Brooke Larson talk there, that's, a, um, you know, her generation seems to be quite active in uh, in this this area. Um, wh- what do you feel about that? And I, I guess it's, there are activists of all, all the generations, but the young generation seems to be especially active here. Oh, absolutely. And I have such respect for what Brooke is doing. Uh, actually, a couple of years ago, I taught a writing class in the Environmental Humanities Program at the University of Utah, and Brooke was one of my students in that master's class. And virtually every young person in that class had made climate change, the, climate, uh, the upcoming climate catastrophe, 
their issue. That was the thing that they were most concerned about. And what I see with, with young folks is that they're, they're doing the kinds of things Brooke is doing. They're not joining the old line mainstream conservation organizations, the Nature Conservancy, the Sierra Club, even 350.org, you know, the, the Bill McKibben's organization. Uh, they're just taking activism into their own hands and doing it in their own way in a really effective way. And uh, it gives me hope. I hope it gives I hope it gives young people like Brooke Hope too, even if she may be talking to us from from jail. Um, <laughs> I think she's out at this point, I'm, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, the, the other thing I've been involved with over over many years is trying to take climate change ac- action on climate change and global warming out of the political arena. You know, we have to pressure elected officials, but in order to get the whole world, the entire global community, to take action together, I think we have to somehow manage to take the conversation out of the political sphere and into a place where we talk about the impact of climate change as a moral issue, an issue of social justice. And so here in Utah, uh, there was an organization that, that I was involved with for many years called Utah Interfaith Power and Light. That, that was, it's a national movement started by a, an Episcopal priest who years ago decided exactly that, that this is a moral issue and we can have more effective conversations between tribes, between the, the conservatives and the progressives, if we talk about it in terms of social justice. And I think that, that there's a lot of hope there, too. There are a no, number of big international organizations looking at climate change looming at us, the disasters that are coming from exactly this perspective, the Parliament of World Religions, Green Faith. Um, these, these are places where faith leaders from around the world are talking with each other and, and probably more effectively than the leaders of countries or the leaders of political parties. Uh, Norway is using a lot of their money, ironically, coming out of those oil wells in the North Sea and giving it to the United Nations to work on deforestation issues with indigenous peoples in the tropics. So there, there's some big, there's some big ideas out there that are complementary to what uh, young people here in the United States are doing. I want to turn to uh, Rob Davies here. I'm uh, interested. So, uh, any comments on what uh, Brooke and uh, Stephen have been saying? And then I want to ask you about this uh, climate change town hall. Some interesting things you were doing doing there, soliciting. Individual stories, right? Is what you were what you were doing at that event, right? So I, I mean, I think this is very complimentary to what we're hearing. And uh, first of all, Brooke, just a very personal thank you for your efforts and your work. Uh, this this tradition of what you would call direct action activism uh, that people like Brooke and her organization and uh, um, the Sunrise Movement that Brooke mentioned, uh, are, and many many others are engaged in has has a huge role to play. I think. Uh, you know, just from an empirical standpoint, we've seen this in many, many transformational social issues, that these are the kinds of actions that play an important, a critical role, not the only role, but a very critical role in moving us forward. And in a system that has become so efficient uh, at inflicting damage upon our life support system, uh, these direct action activism uh, uh, efforts act as a friction uh, to slow things down, to help us give us time to uh, to. Uh, consider and change course. So they're just hugely important. So a big thank you there. Um, 
So uh, the, this notion uh, that you bring up, Tom, and that, and that we focused on in this particular town hall of, of individual uh, action, I think is uh, is is crucial um, for people to feel uh, a sense of ownership of the problem. While it's certainly true that ultimately what we need to be doing is changing whole systems, transforming whole systems. Uh, the the feeling, the taking ownership of those actions and moving it forward, particularly by those of us in the developed world, uh, those of us responsible for the vast majority of the historical carbon emissions uh, and environmental degradation on the planet, um, for us who actually feel those impacts of that the least to start taking ownership of of fixing it is hugely important. So that's one of the things we talked about in that in that town hall. Mm. I want to take a break. When we come back, um, uh, I want to have you, um, uh, I don't know what the word is, uh, Dr. Davis, concern us, frighten us, uh, give us a sense of urgency. Uh, oh, oh, we, we can, I'm you adept good? at that. Okay, yes. good. <laughs> I think we, beca- we can become inured to it. <laughs> because you you know you hear it all the time and uh, and maybe individual psychology you want to block it out because as you said at that uh, you know town hall um, maybe I feel like I can't do much and so I I just want to block it out uh, right um, but uh, a lot of things happening uh, we've had the intergovernmental panel intergovernmental panel on climate change released a report a national climate assessment came out uh, you've got the the meetings in Poland happening. So a lot of uh, a lot of reports uh, coming out. We'll talk about that, and uh, we'll continue to talk. And I want to have a focus on individual action. Uh, I think that's an individual. Uh, that's an important uh, aspect of this, highlighted by Brooke Larson's uh, experiences from yesterday. Uh, we're talking with Brooke Larson, who's a University of Utah graduate student and a climate activist. She's with uh, Wasatch Rising Tide. Um, we have uh, writer and photographer Stephen Trimble with us. And we have USU physicist Rob Davies. Hope to hear from you as well. What's your story? What's your individual story? Do you have uh, uh, an idea that you'd like to put forward? Uh, UPRaccess at gmail.com. UPRaccess at gmail.com is the way to reach us. Or we're on Twitter at UPRaccess. More following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking uh, climate science, also activism. Uh, what are you doing in your life? Uh, what do you feel you you can do? Maybe you can call us, email us, and tell us a report that you're not doing much. You feel stuck. Uh, Rob Davies, one of our guests, says often we feel paralyzed. We're passive because we don't see the whole path uh, to the finish line. We're talking about this with uh, Rob Davies, USU uh, physicist, uh, with Brooke Larson, who's a climate activist with Wasatch Rising Tide, and uh, writer and photographer uh, Stephen Trimble. Hope to talk to you as well. You can uh, tell us your story. Uh, what are you doing? What are you thinking? What are some uh, possible solutions? Uh, upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com, or we're on Twitter at upraccess. So, Dr. Davies, I promise to give you some time to uh, to, to highlight the, the concern, right? The, uh, so let me just read from uh, Brooke Larson's uh, op-ed recently in the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, this will highlight some of these things, and then uh, you can expand on this, Dr. Davies. 
Uh, Brooke Larson writes, in October, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a report that says science society must transition off fossil fuels in the next 12 years to prevent catastrophic warming. National Climate Assessment, with the Trump administration tried to release quietly on Black Friday, uh, predicts a devastating future for the U.S., including mass wildfires, dramatic decreases in crop yields, and projected mega drought for the southwest has already hit Utah. Right. Well, Brooke, Brooke gets it exactly right. That's what the science is telling us. It's, it's actually nothing new. Uh, this, all of this information has been contained in reports in, in years past, but is uh, highlighted in a new context. Uh, and I think this is the, a, a key point. And um, uh, often uh, people who do what I do, which is spend a lot of time trying to help the public understand the science of climate change, get, excuse, uh, get accused of, uh, of fear-mongering, of uh, being doom and gloom. Um, I, I reject those uh, characterizations of the message. The, the messages are certainly um, uh, uh, alarming, uh, but they are not alarmist. And uh, I think the giving those messages uh, accurately as we possibly can as scientists is, is, is our responsibility. Um, and the, the polling shows that a majority of uh, Americans now understand uh, by uh, three quarters uh, of Americans now understand to some level that we have this problem of climate change. That what what I think is not quite clear to the public at the moment is the scale of the challenge, uh, which Brooke highlighted in her her, her op-ed, uh, and and the immediacy and the urgency of the problem. And so uh, so it's time to uh, if if one is going to meet challenges of this scale and this immediacy with effective, meaningful response, one has to be clear-minded about what the actual challenges are. And so I, I certainly spend a lot of time trying to help audiences do that. Uh, but as you mentioned, once when we hear something big and scary, it, it can have the effect of, of paralyzing us. Now, there's a lot of research to this effect that shows that actually, if you uh, present people with a very large, daunting challenge, um, it certainly can paralyze them, but if you also present them with high-efficacy solution pathways, um, things that look like, yes, I think that could help with the problem you just outlined, then it actually energizes uh, um, people. And I might just, uh, maybe I'll conclude this thought with a, this, this notion of, it often gets brought up in this discussion, a kind of a, a, a parallel with World War II and, this, and the scale of effort that it took a society to, uh, to meet that challenge. And... Um, you know, I'm often told that, well, we've got to give people hope and we've got to, we need to be optimistic. Um, I, I actually feel that that's the wrong framing. And I, I look at this speech that, uh, you know, Churchill is famous for giving uh, on the eve of World War II in the Battle of Britain. Uh, this, this famous, we shall fight them on the beaches and in the streets and in the fields and in the air. We shall never surrender. We shall never give up. Uh, and if you read that speech and you look at it, there is no hope in that speech and there is no optimism in that speech. That's not what it's about. That speech is about utter defiance and about utter resolve uh, in the face of an enormous challenge. And, um, you know, he really had no patience at that point for uh, people's need to feel good. What he what he needed was for people to feel energized and to feel we are going to do what we can. And so often what I say in this case, and this is certainly what what gets me up in the morning, many mornings, is is it's not my job to see every step, uh, as you mentioned in the introduction to the finish line or to the top of the mountain. My job is to identify next steps and to take those and to make sure that that's what I do every day. And and um, and I think from individual actions as we move forward with compare uh, with things like. Uh, all the way up to and including what Brooke is doing with her direct action activism 
to uh, the, the steps that we take in our own lives to take responsibility and ownership of this problem for reducing our own environmental footprints, our own carbon footprints uh, are enormously important as a piece of this puzzle. I just want to mention uh, that there's a, a, an event tonight in Logan, a climate change solution worth dancing about. And uh, the reason for that title is not only a discussion uh, on climate change by Rob Davies, but uh, bluegrass music from down yonder will be at that, uh, that event. So that's free and open to the public. It's Whittier Community Center, 290 North, 400 East in Logan. 7 o'clock is when that starts, and that's being presented by the Citizens Climate Lobby Cash Valley uh, chapter. wanted to mention that tonight. I want to uh, turn next... Oh, uh, well, turn next to our listeners. Um, Dr. Davies mentioned next steps, and a lot of those needed need to be individual, right? Yeah, all the way up to activism, uh, to conservation, to whatever you're doing. So a good a good way to think about this is uh, the scale of the challenge is this: we need to essentially cut our carbon emissions in half every decade, starting now. Uh, that's a level of carbon emission reduction uh, on the order of seven percent. If you live in the developed world, which we do, we actually need to do it higher. We need to be closer to 12 or 14% annually carbon reductions. And that rule of thumb holds at every scale. So nationally, our carbon reductions need to be down 14% every year. Uh, as a state, our reductions need to be down every year. As a community, our reductions need to be down every year. And as individuals, they need to be down every year. So if you're looking to see what you can do, Figure out a way to reduce your emissions by 14% every year. Take less airplane flights. Uh, change your diet uh, to move away from animal agriculture, which is, has enormous uh, footprints to it. Um, consider your, uh, your levels of consumption on all kinds of uh, consumerist uh, behaviors. If you can come up with 14%, you know that means if you take 10 airplane flights a year, cut one back next year and the next year after that cut another one back for example so you can take that rule of thumb how much we need to go down every year uh, and apply it like I said to systemic levels but also to personal levels hmm. uh, so we'd love to hear your climate change uh, story what are you thinking what are you uh, doing what do you suggest others do upraxcess at gmail.com upraxcess at gmail.com or on twitter uh, at UPR Access. I want to turn next to uh, Stephen Trimble. Uh, listening there to uh, Rob Davies, um, it, you've you've worked on these issues uh, for for quite a long time as a writer and, and as an activist. And uh, so one one level, Stephen Trimble is raising awareness. Right. Um, I, I'm sure uh, another goal of yours would be to to move your neighbors to to do something. So so to do what and and how do you do that? Oh, that's the fundamental question, Tom. You know, that's what we're all really talking about here is how do we create change? You know, Rob, as a scientist, knows in crystal clear detail what the challenge is to the globe, to, to fight back, to reduce our carbon footprint, to begin to pull back from this catastrophe that's looming ahead of us. So we know what those facts are, and we can present the science to people, but that doesn't convince them to change their behavior, I don't think. You've got to you've got to talk to people in a way that gets to their sense of everyday family life. Uh, what are the impacts on our families? What are the impacts on our future? You know, some kind of emotional connection is the way to do it. And the direct action that Brooke has taken as a young person, I think, actually moves people to pay attention. It's enormously important. And all of those individual changes that Rob talked about, 
eating less meat, uh, you know, shifting to uh, solar panels and insulating our homes and reducing our carbon footprint in any way we can are crucial. Uh, but in order to create change, we've got to have leadership. I thought it was really interesting Rob mentioned Churchill, and that moment of leadership that Churchill expressed at the beginning of World War II is just incomparable, and it's really hard to find leaders like that these days. Um, you know, politicians are just totally beholden to the power of the fossil fuel industry right now. The Trump administration has essentially turned over the entire uh, Secretary of the Interior, Depart- entire Department of the Interior, to simply work at the behest of the fossil fuel industry and turn back from all the, the the moderately good things we were beginning to do. So I keep thinking about how are we going to get to that point where change happens, and that that's when I go back to thinking about okay, who are the moral leaders of the world, and uh, you know if you think about. People like Martin Luther King or Desmond Tutu or Pope John Paul, they tend to be faith leaders that, that bridge nation-to-nation boundaries and can reach people all over the world and begin to make them listen to Rob and pay attention to Brooke and vote differently. And so I, I just yearn for those, those powerful leaders to, to blossom and, and arise from our various societies around the world and, and say, this is what we must do as people. And so it's very much like the old line, you know, act locally, think globally. Uh, it's going to take direct action at the BLM office in every state in the West, and it's going to take the Citizens Climate Lobby chapters in every city in the country to push politicians, and it's going to take national and international leadership that really catches people's uh, moral center and begins, them, begins to move them. But the difficulty is it all has to happen yesterday. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, a lot of urgency uh, here, which can be delicate, right? If you uh, if you lean too much on that, then uh, some people can become paralyzed. But uh, but it, it needs to be there the urgency. And you'll notice that in this program, I, I'm uh, I'm stipulating we didn't bring anybody in to deny climate change. We um, Rob Davies the. The, the talk about the con, briefly about the consensus. The scientific community is is very much almost to a man and woman is uh, convinced about this, right? Well, and that's been the case for thirty years, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, certainly the the uh, the evidence gets stronger and tighter uh, with every passing year. We get more knowledge, we get more science, but but absolutely the scientific consensus on this is uh, is extreme. And so, uh, so uh, my appreciation, Tom, for not trying to present some kind of false equivalence. It's, uh, I, th- I think, it's uh, a trend now in our media. Hopefully, it's, it's not as quick as we would sometimes hope. But, um, but this is where. It, but I think that's no longer really necessary, right? As I mentioned, most of the country now understands through all kinds of polling that this is a problem, and uh, and uh, now the the challenge is understanding the scale. And the pace of the problem, the challenge, and the scale, and the pace of the solutions, and what they look like, um, and so uh, that I've definitely seen a shift to the conversation in that over the last several years, and uh, and it's been welcome. Before I go back to Brooke Larson, I definitely want to get some more points with with her. I want to get this email in, and you can email as well. We'd love to hear your climate change story. Uh, what are you doing? What uh, possible solutions uh, uh, would you suggest? 
And uh, what what have you been doing? Maybe you could uh, suggest others uh, do that uh, to address uh, this problem. Uh, this is Olivia in Salt Lake City. She says, hello, Tom. Thanks for the show. Writing to express urgency, this problem poses for people of color in Utah. Studies show air quality in the Salt Lake Valley is often worst in West Valley and Rose Park, places with the densest Latinx population in the valley and uh, low-income populations. Further, people of color have disproportionate access to enjoying the mountains and deserts in Utah, which means that the environment these communities know must uh, most intimately is uh, thus the urban environment, where pollution and heat is the norm. Our uh, county is lacking infrastructure, like access to public transit, organic produce, rooftop solar, and policy available to give low-income people and people of color more autonomy in making decisions to be more climate-conscious. That's why nonviolent direct action matters so much. Right now, it feels like the only meaningful tool we have. That's Olivia in Salt Lake City. So that leads uh, very nicely into the question I was going to ask, ask uh, Brooke Larson. I want to uh, reference uh, this Climate Change Town Hall Dr. Davies uh, uh, appeared at. This is when, uh, in October. And at that event on the USU campus, um, uh, scrolling down this, Brenda Hawley, sustainability fellow, said, Passive environmentalism isn't enough anymore. Um, obviously, by your actions, Brooke Larson, I'm guessing you agree with that. I wonder if you could talk about that. What What is needed? Yeah, I think um, I would agree with that. I'd be curious to hear more of what she was referring to as passive environmentalism, but I that, think... That's the, that's the whole of the quote, so I'm not sure what <laughs> exactly she's going to do with it. <laughs> I, I think I can kind of pick up on maybe what she was talking about, but I think when you look back at past social and environmental movements, it was mass collective action that um, inspired change and put the political pressure on leaders like uh, Steve Trimble was talking about. And without that mass uh, public pressure, uh, it's rare that we've seen leaders step up and take the change needed um, so, and I think beyond just like the results politically, I think it also helps um, with the cultural shifts. And also, I mean, for me personally, when I'm like taking collective action with my friends, that's when I feel most hopeful and inspired. And so I think it also continues, um, helps motivate us and makes me at least personally feel less uh, in just this total place of distress and despair with what's happening in the world so i think at various levels uh taking that action that active uh bold collective action is super important do you think uh do you think brooke larson uh do you think there's a movement afoot among your generation do you think this rises to that do you think something do you think these think, think something's big is happening i don't know what does it feel like to I you? I mean, I would definitely say yes. I think it's happening at various levels. Um, you brought up the Sunrise Movement earlier, and I think that's definitely something that's happening at the national level, pressuring the Democratic Party. I also think here in the Southwest we have somewhat um, distinct challenges, and I've organized a lot with this group called Uplift that is working. It's a youth-led movement um, focused on climate justice in the Southwest, and particularly the Colorado Plateau, the Four Corners area, where you know we just have these massive sacrifice zones um, for energy development. And I think um, 
people are increasingly placing emphasis on supporting frontline communities, these communities that have been sacrificed for generations and elevating those stories. And um, with Uplift, we've just, we have an annual gathering every year and have just seen that grow and grow with enthusiasm from 80 people its first uh, year, four years ago, to almost 200 young people showed up this past year. And it's like not an easy thing to get to. It's usually in some remote campground somewhere in the Southwest. But p- young people are just, uh, I think, feeling really inspired and empowered and also this urgency that you all have been talking about um, to take action. So I feel very hopeful <laughs> and inspired by my generation and definitely think a movement is rising from various different levels. And I guess another thing to add to that, I think climate change, maybe more so than past environmental movements, has brought in um, a pretty clear social justice lens. And there's uh, a very intersectional movement bringing in issues of um, immigration and, you know, indigenous struggles. And so I think because of that, it has this power to really bring us together in ways that maybe past environmental movements haven't been able to. Before we go to break, uh, just an, uh, one more question uh, to you, Brooke Larson. Then I'll ask the same question of uh, of uh, Rob Davies and Stephen Trimble after the break. And we have an email who's coming from uh, that's coming from Kathleen. We'll get to that as well. Hopefully, your email as well, upraxcess at gmail dot com. I want to hear your story, upraxcess at gmail dot com, or your thoughts. Uh, so, uh, Brooke Larson, you wrote a uh, a piece for High Country News, which in fact won an, an award. Congratulations for that. Um, activism. What are we fighting for? Was the title. And uh, you talked very poetically about uh, up in the Aspen forests. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. What What are you fighting for? What What's the reason? Yeah, that essay I wrote. Um, I learned a couple summers ago that Aspen faced very in the Southwest, at least, faced very little chance of surviving um, climate change and mega drought that's hitting the Southwest. We're already seeing mass die-offs, especially in. Southwest Colorado, where I first learned about this from a climate scientist, actually, at the University of Utah, uh, Bill Andreg. And, you know, I work a lot on climate issues from a social justice perspective, but what brought me, I think, initially to this movement was a love of the land here in Utah. And, you know, I love the Red Rock, but also um, there's this aspen grove up in the Wasatch, uh, just across from Solitude. Uh, there's just tons of aspens up there that has always been really special to me and just an area that I've always returned to in the Wasatch, um, basically since I was a teenager and could drive up into the canyons. So I think to me that was a really like visceral and personal moment where I saw um, how the landscapes that have shaped me and are important to my personal story could be impacted, and it feels I guess I also was thinking about, like, what does this do to our spirit um, when these places that are so important to us are dying? And so that's what I wrote about in that essay, and I think um, what are we fighting for can be really different for everyone, but that was one personal moment that kind of brought climate change um, back to the ground level for me and how it impacts us in our daily lives. 
Um, yeah, I think it does. It comes down to each one of us is has different reason, right? Um, but we we want to hear your story, upraxcess at gmail.com. And what are you doing? What do you suggest is our solutions? Talking about climate change, science, and activism on the program today. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll come back with uh, Kathleen's email, hopefully yours as well, upraxcess at gmail.com. And uh, we'll hear more from uh, our panel, which includes uh, writer and photographer Stephen Trimble, USU physicist Dr. Rob Davies, and uh, climate activist and U of U graduate student Brooke Larson. More following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about climate science and activism. On the program today, we want to know your story. Uh, brainstorming uh, specific solutions in individual lives or uh, as a society. Um, what are you doing? What do you suggest to be done? And what's your story? Your thoughts on this? Upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com. I want to get uh, directly to Kathleen's email. Kathleen says, as an adjunct professor at Dixie State University teaching geography, one sphere of influence in which I partake is education. I aim to give my students the specific details about climate change to help them understand the difference between opinion and the science that's going on in the atmosphere. I asked my students to watch the excellent documentary Ice and Sky about the French researcher Claude Lorrain, who realized that in uh, deep ice core samples rested frozen gases that indicated the amounts of atmospheric gases across the ages. Also bring into the class discussion the chemistry of carbon bonding to remind them of high school chemistry and why carbon dioxide bonds are so strong and persist in the environment. I want my students to have a clear rationale for activism and for explaining to their families, friends, and policymakers why climate change is real and needs policy changes on the level of governmental policy. This change of understanding can help my students feel secure in their activism and motivation for change. Also, the very hot summer of uh, 2018 in southern Utah gave folks a dose of possible summer futures. Ugh! Exclamation point, she says. Uh, other uh, motivation, another motivation for activism. I might add, recently Springdale had uh, U.S. Route 9 replaced. However, the town decided not to plant any new trees, even though UDOT budget would have allowed some trees. When I asked the town planner why this investment in the future of shade and carbon dioxide consumption trees had been purposely left out of redesign of the town, it was vague answer about problems of irrigation, but it didn't make any sense. He had no clear answer, and I asked if any women had been on the committee that made the decision. He answered no. At times in Utah, I feel that women are not considered as part of the public discussion and formation of public policy as a part of the power structure in the state. This could be the influence of religion and habit. So as I, uh, as I, so I try as a resident to attend meetings, even though at times I and others feel relegated to the position of quote-unquote annoying to the powers that be, that favor unlimited development in southern Utah, but we continue to uh, try uh, our local uh, venue to uh, think and act forward. Thank you for the show. That's Kathleen in uh, southern Utah there. Um, Stephen Trimble, I want to throw this to, to you. That, that anything you want to do to uh, respond to Kathleen or anything that's been said here, and I, I, I'm interested in this position. Kathleen feels like she's relegated to the position of annoying the powers that be. Um, I guess that it feels that way sometimes. Well, that's our job. We we have to annoy those those folks. We are the citizens, and they will do what their lobbyists tell them to do, unless the citizens make a lot of noise. Uh, you know, you were going to ask, uh, what are we fighting for, Tom? Yes. And 
we're fighting for the earth as we've come to know and love it and for the the home landscape here in Utah that we've come to know and love. And that's very much what, what Kathleen is talking about. You know, we're looking at not just drought, we're looking at permanent aridification of the Southwest. You know, she said she taught at Dixie College, so she lives down by St. George. You know, St. George is going to have the same climate as, as uh, Phoenix, and Salt Lake will have the climate of St. George. That's where we're headed. And so each of us has to pick our issue, and whether it's the environment or climate change or women's rights or, you know, mass incarceration, there are any number of issues that demand attention from all of us. Each one of them is huge, and we have to pick our issue and then make ourselves annoying and write op-eds and letters to the editor and use words and photographs and use the arts, as, as Rob does, and get people's attention, every, every kind of person, from citizen to president. And that collective action empowers us and gives us hope. We've talked about that a little bit already. And I, I'm so intrigued with the way that we try to create change together. You know, we come together as groups and demand the attention of people in power. And those groups must be inclusive. Uh, both your your uh, correspondent, Kathleen, and, and Brooke have talked about inclusivity and intersectionality. And young people remind us that we've got to pay attention to all those under-listened-to groups. And person by person and community by community, we begin to create change. You know, San Juan County is different after the 2018 election that elected two Native people to the county commission. Uh, and pretty soon the state begins to change. And with enough states taking a new position in the world, pretty soon you reach that crucial, magical line where all of a sudden the nation changes. That's what happened with with uh, gay marriage, same-sex marriage. You know, all of a sudden we had this enormous leap forward, and it it happened uh, almost like a fire, you know, person to person, all of a sudden it begins to build, and pretty, pretty soon you reach uh, what uh, Stephen Jay Gould used to call punctuated equilibrium. Things are the same for a long time, and then there's this great leap forward. And uh, that's that's what I hope for in in our response to climate change. We've We've got to make a huge leap, and I think we're inching our way toward it. Uh, we, we've uh, had some emails come in. Thank you for that. I'd love to hear your story as well. Upraccess at gmail.com. Upraccess at gmail.com. This is Nick. He says, many individual solutions discussed so far ask people to, quote-unquote, give up something they enjoy, a hard sell for many people. A positive solution is to take another look at the new technology of electric bikes and cars. Electric bikes allow you to go further uh, easier and uh, get exercise at the same time. I commute to work eight miles regularly, which eliminates a car and the hassle of parking. If you can uh, charge it with uh, clean energy, you can significantly reduce your carbon footprint. A positive solution. That's Nick. So thank you for that. Um, and uh, let's see. Next up is uh, Dave. David. He says, why won't anybody discuss, and this is in all caps with many exclamation points, overpopulation. So why won't anyone discuss overpopulation? I'm trying to uh, to, to give the sense of the, of the email. Um, uh, and... Uh, Dr. Davies raised his hand here. He's willing to discuss overpopulation. Go. Well, uh, I think just to answer the question, it's a, it's a fine question, but the, the particularly with climate change, with environmental impact, uh, 
in the long term, certainly population is a is a huge term in the equation, as we might say scientifically. But uh, at the moment, what we're population isn't the problem. Uh, at the moment, uh, consumption is the problem, and so. When, when the conversation turns to population, or if you want to call it overpopulation, all eyes and fingers start to point to the developing world where birth rates are high. Um, but, of course, the developing world is not what is producing the environmental degradation and particular climate change that we're seeing now. It's the developed world where uh, our resource footprint in the United States is 26 times that. Uh, of per capita of a of a resource footprint of a of a person who lives in Bangladesh, so um, the reason that population is not generally pointed to uh, by the people who are looking at solutions for climate change is because that is not where it's arising from. the The challenge is mostly in the developed world. We've created this problem. We're the ones with the huge uh, footprints. Eighty um, percent of the world's emissions uh, are produced by 20% of the world's population. And it's not the 20% where the birth rates are high. So that's why uh, population is often not really the focus of the discussion. Uh, by the way, David, uh, the headline to his email is, Are We Living in 1970? Question mark. And then, uh, let's see, David uh, wrote back in a couple of short emails. Uh, One solution, he says, uh, goal to two billion. Uh, such a joke, you talking heads. That's David. So I'm not sure what he's re- referring to there. Uh, and then uh, let's see. Useless, he says. If seven billion stopped everything today, we still face total catastrophe. Uh, stop talking and start the movement to zero births. If you want to help, don't get pregnant. Ha ha, he says. Tell that to the Philippines. So uh, more on um, population which uh, Dr. Davies has uh, talked about here. I'd love to hear your story, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We just have about uh, four minutes left. I want to turn uh, next to uh, Brooke Larson. Uh, we heard from Olivia. She said that uh, minorities are disproportionately in- impacted. And Kathleen talked about how she felt that women's voices um, aren't uh, heard as much, I guess, on a range of issues, including this issue. I wonder what your thoughts are on those two topics. Yeah, I think both those points are super important, and I think, um, yeah, I think in the environmental movements of the past, we haven't always done a great job of including diverse voices. Um, I mean, the environmental justice movement has been alive since the 80s or so, so I don't want to discount that, but I think here in the West, um, we haven't always been great at including all the voices that need to be heard. And so I think, for me, the climate justice movement is really powerful in that way. Um, My experience in that movement is that it has centered frontline communities, so those most impacted by climate change, and often those are um, communities of color, lower-income communities. And also, in my experience, um, most of these movements are led by women, and so... To me, that's really exciting and empowering, and I think the direction that uh, this work needs to be going in, and just, yeah, definitely to echo um, what Olivia was saying about the air quality here, um, it's just, yeah, that those impacts are being disproportionately seen um, on the west side, and uh, (laughs) when I got out of jail yesterday, it felt very apocalyptic, you know, it's in west valley and I couldn't see the mountains at all because the smog was just so intense Um, and so I think those conversations about who's being most impacted definitely need to be happening more. 
Um, thank you for that. We just have a couple of minutes left. Um, uh, usually a, a message to, to David. I'm glad you're responding. Uh, usually it's one or two emails is what our limit is, but these have been very short. Uh, I'll... I'll uh, I'll allow this one. He says, please, have you seen the rivers in the third world? Have you seen the oceans? What about the plastic? I think he's responding, Dr. Davies, to your uh, point about the bigger problem is in the developed world. So very brief response from you. Well, once again, certainly you can have locally heavy pollution problems in societies where uh, people's basic needs are not being met, and so the environmental uh, considerations are not always at the top. I will simply point out that often, again, the finger gets pointed at the developing world uh, without acknowledging that an enormous fraction of the pollution that's occurring in the developed world is a result of production that we have outsourced from uh, the developed world uh, to those places. Um, so a large fraction of the impact in China and South Asia and India is coming from uh, production directly attributable to our consumption here in uh, the developed world in the United States and Europe in particular. So um, <laughs> once again, that's a misconception. Uh, and, uh, and, and I don't think the eyes, our eyes do not need to be focused on those people who are being disproportionately affected and who are least responsible for the, for the situation that we're in. We need to look inward. Um, and that's the hard part of this, of course, because we're not being as affected. Uh, and so you hear that it sounds like it's catastrophe, but you walk outside to a nice life. I certainly have a nice life, and it doesn't feel like it. And so to Stephen Trimble's point um, and to Brooks, um, we need to not just understand the information intellectually. Uh, I don't think that's a problem anymore. I think the problem is connecting to that information, and that is what the storytellers do. That's what essays like Brooks do. Um, uh, photograph stories. Um, it wasn't Berkeley sociologists who were connecting us to the changes in the 1960s. It was 19-year-old musicians and uh, poets and writers. And um, and it's that uh, I very much agree with Stephen's point that we need to connect to this on a visceral level. And that the moral question, I think, is there. Is, is this consistent with who we see ourselves to be? And if it's not, if we take a really hard look at that, then we find ourselves compelled to act. Uh, Stephen Tribble, uh, the, the hard assignment here, 30 seconds to uh, what's, your, what's your takeaway from the discussion this hour? We're asking for such massive change that it boils down to the political will of entire nations. But what that means in reality is the individual votes of each elected official, in con you know, each congressman, each senator, and they're elected by us. So after listening to this, I just encourage every every person listening to this edition of Access Utah, when you're done, figure out who your state representative is, if you don't know, and your state senator, and write them an email and say, this matters to me. We want you to address air quality issues. We want you to keep fossil fuels on the ground. This is crucial to the future of our kids and our grandkids, and my vote is going to depend on your behavior. Your okay. Position. We'll have to leave it there. Uh, out of time. Thank you so much. Um, Rob Davies, uh, Brooke Larson, and uh, Stephen Trimble, thank you so much.